Joshua 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness... And this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And now, Lord, as we open up your word, I pray that you would reveal your heart to us, and that we would align our hearts with yours, Lord. Teach us this morning. Let us hear from you, Lord. And in your holy name I pray, amen. On April 13th, 1970, um, Mission Commander Jim Lovell uttered the now famous words, Houston, we've had a problem. Lovell, along with two astronauts, was aboard Apollo 13, and nearly 56 hours into their mission to the moon, they heard an extremely loud bang. At this point, they're not sure what uh, was going on, but their oxygen tank sensors are erratic and their electrical systems are not stable. They also observe that two out of their three fuel cells are dead and the third one is rapidly depleting. Within a few minutes, they discover that their spaceship that is now over 200,000 miles away from Earth and hurtling at over 2,000 miles an hour away from Earth is quickly losing oxygen and power. And they don't know it yet, but oxygen tank number two has just exploded and it's damaged oxygen tank one in the process. This whole scenario is so inconceivable to these astronauts and to Mission Control in Houston that later on, uh, Lovell said that if you were to put me in the simulator and tell me that fuel cells one and three have failed and oxygen tank one and two have failed, I would tell you that this is an unrealistic simulation. You're like, come on, man, you're just being way too unrealistic here. But sure enough, here they are. In an effort to save power for 
re-entry, the astronauts, the astronauts actually power down the command module and they go into the lunar module that has provisions for uh, in the event of an emergency. Now, unfortunately, the provisions are intended to sustain only two men for about 40 hours where they need to sustain three men for four days. This mission has now dramatically become a life or death situation for these, uh, for these astronauts. And while landing on the moon was now out of the question and abandoned, the new mission was to get these men home alive. A mission that would critically depend on two-way communication between the astronauts and mission control. As Apollo 13 flung through space, Towards a seemingly bleak end, the astronauts would continue to receive constant guidance, instruction, and assurance from mission control in Houston. If the astronauts waver from mission control's instructions at all, it could bring about a deadly result. However, we know how the story ends. Due to the hard work from mission control and the communication between the two and the crucial responsiveness of the astronauts, astronauts, the three men splashed down safely on April 17th at 1.07 p.m. Apollo 13 would later on be known as a successful failure. While they failed to land on the moon, they successfully returned home um, despite the lethal conditions. Last week, we took a look at the first five verses of Joshua 1, and we discovered that Joshua and the Israelites were uh, on a mission. They were on a mission commissioned by God to go into the promised land and take it from the Canaanites. And God understood, God understood um, that this mission was quite daunting. And he reminded Joshua that he would be with him. But then he goes on in verses 6 through 9, which we're looked at today, uh, and he provides more guidance for Joshua. In order for this mission to be successful, Joshua would need regular communication from mission control, from God himself. Essentially, the first half of Joshua, what we looked at last week, was all about God's promises, whereas the second half, which is what we'll cover this week, is all about Joshua's responsibilities that he must accept. Starting in verse 6, with fear lurking in the background of this mission briefing, God calls on Joshua to be strong and courageous, not just one time, but three times throughout our passage. It is easy for us to let fear or the feeling of inadequacy or doubt to cripple our decisions as we move onward. It is easy for them to create chaos in our mind as we move forward. It's easy for them to shake our confidence. This is no different for Joshua. Such chaos and confusion and hesitation on the part of Joshua as a leader could breed uh, desperation. It could breed despair in his people that would endanger the mission altogether. 
And so in order to avoid this, Joshua, this would potentially be a temptation for him to not take any risks at all or even to retreat out of the out of the promised land. And so when God commands Joshua three times to be strong and courageous, what he's telling Joshua is, hey, Joshua, keep going, unwavering, be unwavering, be concrete, be steady, be bold as you advance. We actually see this command elsewhere in Scripture. It's all over the Old Testament to be strong and courageous. Um, in Deut- Deuteronomy 31, we see a similar commissioning from um, from Moses to his people, telling them to go into the land and to be strong and courageous. Uh, Joshua 10, uh, as the Israelites are already in the land at that point, they come face to face with the kings of their enemies, and Joshua tells them, be strong and courageous. In 1 Chronicles 22, uh, David is instructing Solomon to build the temple, and he tells them to be strong and courageous. In Daniel 10, an angel of the Lord addresses Daniel, and he says to Daniel, be strong and of good courage. And those aren't the only ones. Those are just a handful. But the interesting thing is, if you were to look at every single passage in the Old Testament that, that, that is commanding us to be strong and courageous or commanding the original reader to be strong and courageous, you will find that this command is always, always coupled within the context of God's support and God's presence. Scripture enjoins strength and courage with God and his word. For Joshua, the command to be strong and courageous does not come empty-handed. This isn't some kind of hollow pep talk, you know, kind of like a pat on the back and go get them, skip. Good luck, right? No, absolutely not. This is not some kind of inspirational boost with no foundation. You know, it's one thing for God to say, Joshua, be strong and courageous, and that's all I've got. (laughs) Have at it. It's an entire, uh, it's a whole other thing for, for God to enable him to be strong and courageous. How will Joshua be able to be strong and courageous? It tells us in verse 7, by doing all that Moses commanded him to do. By following the book of the law. Joshua, this is where your strength and courage comes from. The law of Moses. The book of the law. So what, what specifically is this document that God is talking about? What is the, the book of the law that Moses wrote? Um, specifically in our passage, we know that it's at least the book of Deuteronomy, the De- Deuteronomic law. But we have reason to believe that what God is referring to here is actually the first five books of the Bible. Genesis through Deuteronomy, we call this the Pentateuch. The, the word Torah means law, and we actually call the first five books the, the, the Torah as well. And we have to be very careful when we read this in our own 21st century context, because it would be very easy to inject our own bias as we read. Um, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word law, it conjures up images of harsh and rigid practice. 
You know, in our own minds, we associate the word law with uh, legal code or legalism. I start thinking about lawyers, and that's never a pleasant thought, right? I apologize if you're a lawyer. You know, this can leave a very bitter taste in our mouth if we're not careful when we hear this word law. However, to the ancient Israelite, the, the word Torah, the, which means law, was, was more like the word instruction. It, and they loved the law. You don't have to look far to see um, how they felt about the law, what, what own feelings were evoked in their life when they, when they thought about the law. Psalm 119 it calls, calls the law a delight, that it's a source of wonder and grace. It refers to the law as a, as a precious treasure that's worthy to be loved, that's worthy to be sought. In Second Chronicles 31, we see that the law was revered by the Israelites as an object of devotion. And so to the original readers, this law, this instruction didn't leave a bitter taste in their mouth, but a very sweet taste to be savored. There's two reasons why the Israelites would have seen this instruction, this law from Moses with such a sweet allure. The first, as one commentator describes, is that the context of the law of Moses isn't, um, isn't the court of law, but the covenant relationship between God and Israel. This instruction, this law of Moses, teaches Israel about the very character of God and his loving devotion towards his people. It tells us who God is. This is the key to knowing who God is. What makes him tick? What does he care about? What does his heart break for? Second, the Israelites understand firsthand that the law of Moses is so much more than just a document with words on a page. It's so much more than just written words that loosely describe some God that's out there somewhere that doesn't really want anything to do with us. No, it's God speaking to them firsthand. They recognize that through the law of Moses, we can have an intimate relationship with an almighty, all-powerful God who's not just out there, who wants to be actively engaged in our nation. Second Timothy 3, we're told that all scripture is breathed out by God. What this basically means, uh, when Paul wrote this to Timothy, he is actually referencing and including this law of Moses um, that, that Joshua is told to follow. He basically, the, the reason we can be confident that these words about God are true and reliable is because they come from God's very own mouth. Yes, they may be physically written by mere men, but they were verbally inspired by God himself. God is communicating to us through his written word. And I find this in this passage utterly fascinating. Because in the first five verses, 
God is telling Joshua, I am sending you on a mission. I am sending you into battle. You're going to have to fight the Canaanites. And what does he give Joshua? He doesn't give Joshua a battle plan. He doesn't give Joshua a leadership strategy. He doesn't give Joshua the seven habits of highly effective people. He gives Joshua God's word. He gives him his very own word. He doesn't equip Joshua with a sword. He equips Joshua with the sword of the spirit, which Ephesians 6 calls the word of God. Being able to be strong and courageous strictly comes from God's word. God's word enables you to be strong and courageous. To, to know God and his ways and his promises and his character lead us to be strong and courageous. See, our strength does not come from any kind of worldly source. It's not something that we can just muster up within. It's not looking to ourselves saying, if only I can do this, or if only I can do that, then, and only then will I be strong and courageous. No, what God is saying is that this doesn't come from within you. This comes from outside of you. More specifically, my word. You want to be strong? You want to be brave? You want to have courage? All of those things will only come from the word of God. God's word and strength are eternally linked. So yes, the Bible is so much more than words on a written page. It is a living word that knows me. It's a living word that can produce in me strength and courage. And it is God actively engaging with his creation, with the Israelites, and with us through his word. It is, it is God's desire that we know him and understand him. And he has gone to great lengths to reveal himself to us, not just in speaking to us through his word, but revealing his word in the very flesh. And this is what John chapter one gets at. John 1, 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What John is saying when he writes this is that Jesus is God's word incarnate. Jesus is God's very word in the flesh. And it, he reveals to us the very nature of God, the very glory of God. You want to know God? Open your eyes. Get into this book and start digging. Because the more that you dig, the more that you read, the more that you look, you will find that every page in this book screams at the fact that God is with us. It shouts at us from the mountaintops that God desires for us to know him, that he is revealing himself to us. Bertrand Russell was a, a British philosopher and, the math, and a mathematician in the early 1900s. He identified himself as an agnostic. 
And somebody asked him one time, what if, Bertrand, you're wrong? What if you came face to face with God? How would you account for your belief? What would you say to God if you came to him face to face? And he replied, I would tell him, sir, why did you take such pains to hide yourself? I'm sorry, Mr. Russell, but you must be blind. You are blind to the fact that God went to such pains not to hide himself, but to reveal himself. Jesus Christ hanging on a cross in a public forum because he claimed to be, to be, to be, claimed to be God. There was nothing private about Jesus's ministry. There was nothing hidden about God revealing himself to us. Everything about Jesus's ministry was public for the world to see. This is why he also in John, he talks about when Jesus came into the world, it was like a light in the darkness. It was piercing in the darkness. And the only way that you're not going to be able to see light in the darkness is if your eyes are closed, if you're blinded to it, if you're not looking for it. God has revealed himself through Christ. He's revealed his word through Christ. And I'm here to tell you that it's impossible to miss unless you open your eyes. This is still true today. This is still the case today. You know, while Jesus is no longer physically walking with us, he did send another, a third person of the Trinity. What we'd call, we'd call him the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit essentially performs the functions towards us that Jesus would if he was still walking with us today in the flesh. And one of the primary roles of the Spirit testify about who Jesus is in our own hearts. Later on in the Gospel of John, this is what he writes in verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, that's, this is Jesus talking, and the Helper is the Holy Spirit. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So we know from this that this very day, God is calling out to you by the Holy Spirit, through his word, by the Holy Spirit, through his word. God is using these very pages, calling out to you to draw near to him, to find truth, to find a firm foundation. The famous theologian John Calvin has said that the word is the instrument by which the Lord dispenses the illumination of his spirit to believers. The word is the very instrument that that the Holy Spirit uses to unveil our eyes. By the power of the Holy Spirit, life change occurs when you are constantly and consistently exposed to the preaching of God's word. True transformation, true spiritual growth does not arise uh, from some kind of emotional experience It doesn't arise because I've got that funny feeling in my stomach or I've got those, you know, the the goosebumps on my skin because of something that happened. True spiritual growth doesn't happen because of some kind of gimmick that I see so many churches trying to use this very day. 
No, true spiritual transformation only happens when you immerse yourself in God's word. This is why what we do here on Sunday morning when we preach God's word, it is the single most important thing that we can do today. Looking into it, studying it, absorbing it. It's the single most important thing that you can be doing on on a daily basis. Do you want your life to have purpose? Do you want to see life change? Do you want your life to be marked by strength and courage? Then plunge yourself into the depths of God's revealed word, and you will come to know Jesus face to face. And as you search scripture, and as Jesus is revealed to you, you'll see you will see while the, why the Israelites saw the, the law of Moses, God's word, as a precious gift, as a delight sweeter than honey. You'll see that this is a delight that is unlike anything I've ever known because I've poured myself into this. And so, no, God does not give Joshua just a written document. He offers his very word to him. He offers Joshua order. He's saying, Joshua, in a world that is broken, in in a world that is chaotic, I am speaking my word into it to provide order. This is what we see in Genesis 1 at the very beginning. It talks about the earth being formless and void. Another word for formless and void is chaos. But what happens? God sees that there's chaos, and so he speaks, and then there's order. Your life is chaotic because it's marred by the brokenness of this world, and the only order is going to come from God's very own word. And so in an orderly fashion, in our passage, God sets some parameters. He knows how important his word is. He knows how important his instructions, his order are. And so this is what he says in verse 7. He says, be careful to follow my word. And then in the second half, he says, do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Basically, he's saying, Joshua, do you want to receive my blessings? Do you want success to be a byproduct? Do you want to experience a a full life? Do you want to experience what it's like to follow me? Then stick on the path. Stay, uh, Stay the course. Don't waver from my word. Listen to me and obey me and listen only to me and obey only me. It would be easy for Joshua to listen to the voices of the Canaanites and grow intimidated. It would be easy for Joshua to listen to the very voices of his own troops and gain, grow in discouragement. It would be even easier for Joshua to listen to his own voice and decide to just stay in the desert, to not take hold of God's, God's promises. You know, when we hear these other voices, when we hear our own voice, we become distracted. It's only when Joshua listens to God's voice that he would have the strength and the courage to do what seemed impossible. It's not hard to understand this. We know how easy it is for us to be bumped off course. 
to be knocked off the path because it's in our nature. We are prone to wander. We are a curious people. We're curious. We look to the left and we look to the right and we grow curious about what's over there. And so we tend to to wander naturally over there. There is a lot that can creep into our life and it doesn't take much to knock us off mission. The smallest thing can, can knock us off course. In Apollo 13, in the mission that I mentioned earlier, they later found out through an investigation that the oxygen tank, which burst during the mission, had accidentally been dropped two inches, damaging the, the thin wall of the oxygen point. It was, it was dropped two inches at some point prior to its installation. A mere two-inch drop damaged the tank enough that it jeopardized the entire mission and put three astronauts' lives at risk. We need to take this warning not to stray to the left or to the right from God's word very seriously because of how easy it is to wander and how disastrous the results can be from said wandering. When we stray from God's word, we jeopardize the mission. We jeopardize our own mission to go into all nations, baptizing and teaching them to obey Jesus's command. Like Joshua, we can't listen to our emotions. We can't listen to false perceptions that life's circumstances bring our way. We must listen to God's voice and only God's voice. There are voices in your life right now that feel good. There are voices in your life that you're listening to that feel right, but they are drawing you off path. There are voices in your life that you want to listen to because it's someone you think that you can trust, but they are voices filled with lies and deceit, whether they realize they're doing that or not. Be very, very careful who you listen to. Because while God's word draws you to himself, these other voices that you are potentially listening to are drawing you away from God. And the further that you get away from God, the harder it is going to be for you to hear God's voice. It's the reason why Bertrand Russell can sit there and say, Sir, why did you take such pains to hide yourself? Because he believed the lies that captured and captivated his attention. God is hidden in your life because you've listened to the voices of the world instead. This is why as I stand here and speak to you, I don't want you to take my word. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to look into scripture and be able to tell yourself if Pastor Mike is lying or not. You should know this well enough to be able to call out the lies for what they're worth. I want you to be so engrossed in God's word yourself that you can stand and say that this is true or I've strayed from the left or to the right. John MacArthur He was a famous pastor out of California, wrote a book called Reckless Faith, and 
in this book, he includes a popular anecdote where he talks about how federal agents don't learn to spot counterfeit money uh, by studying the counterfeits. Instead, they study genuine bills until they master the look of the real thing. Then when they see the bogus money, they recognize it for what it really is. The reason they can spot the counterfeit, the reason they can spot the lies is because they know so well the real thing, the true thing. One commentator says that if God's primary means of communication with us is through his word, every other voice in your life must be tested by this clear revelation. Every voice that comes into your life needs to be tested, tried and true by scripture for you to be able to determine, is this from God or is this from the devil? We need to know God's word so well that we can spot a lie when we hear it. And as we move forward as a church, in this transition, we have to be careful not to stray from God's word to the left or to the right. It's subtle. You may not realize it when it's happening, when you stray. So we have to keep ourselves on guard. Transition and leadership provides occasion for instability uh, or disaster. We are in a vulnerable spot right now as a church body. And if we hope to get through this, we must keep to God's word. How do we keep to God's word? By knowing it. And how do we know God's word? By reading it. By being it. And this is what verse 8 talks about. God wants Joshua in verse 7 to follow his word, but he knows in order to follow his word, Joshua must know his word, and in order to know his word, he must read his word. He tells Joshua, the book of the law shouldn't depart your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Hey, Joshua, this book that I'm giving you, it can't sit on your coffee table collecting dust. Pick it up. Read it. Talk about it. Teach it to your children. Let it shape all of your words that you speak. And don't hoard it to yourself, but share it with the community around you. But don't just stop there, Joshua. I don't want you to only read it. I want you to meditate on it, study it, think about it. The word for meditate here is actually the word mutter. To, to mutter. By definition, this, this Hebrew word here uh, means it's, it's the act of thoughtful deliberation with the implication of speaking to oneself. If you were a fly on my wall, uh, you would notice that when I get into real, real deep thought, I begin talking to myself. Uh, the, the voices in my head soon manifest into voices outside of my head because of how deep in thought that I am. And this is the, this is the picture that we get in scripture. God wants Joshua to be in such deep thought on scripture that he eventually begins to talk about it. That it just, it overflows into some physical representation. He said, don't just read it, know it, study it, absorb it like a sponge. Retain it. Scripture should be a staple of our life where everything we do and everything we say and everything we think overflows from our understanding of God's word. Do you know God's word? Our consistency in God's word is critical as we move onward. 
We have a selective memory. We will forget, and only a healthy dose of God's word will jog the memory and bring us on course or keep us on course. If we want to be a mission church, we have to let God's word be our guide. We have to be in it daily as a people. It's our intention to be in God's word every Sunday. There shouldn't be a week that goes by that we don't open up this book. There shouldn't be a week that goes by that we don't open up God's word and say, Lord, what would you have for us? So like I said last week, let me encourage you to be bringing your Bibles every week. I would like uh, to eventually not even put the words of our main passage up on the screen because I would like to guide your attention to the very book that you can hold in your hand. I want you to focus on your own Bibles. With that, um, and we'll close, but I, I recognize that we need to do whatever we can to put the Bible in your hands with the proper translation. Uh, several years ago, we started preaching out of what we call the ESV, and we never really said anything about it. Um, the ESV, it's the English Standard Version, is a more literal interpretation of the original language. It is a closer to a word-for-word translation, where the NIV, which many of you have, and those are the pew Bibles, is what we would call a thought-for-thought translation. And so there's nothing wrong with the NIV. Um, I would encourage you to continue using it. I would just say for our purposes here on Sunday mornings, we will continue to use the ESV. And it doesn't help you much that we have NIV Bibles uh, in the pew racks. And so uh, next week, actually, thanks to a very, very generous donation from one of our congregants last fall, we will be placing ESV Bibles into the racks behind your seats. And so if you don't have your own copy of the ESV, we will provide you one that you can use here uh, temporarily on Sunday mornings. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful for God's word. And I pray as we continue to move through this transition that you would fall in love and delight in it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for our time this morning. We ask you, Lord, that you would guide us by your word, that your spirit would move in us and that you would reveal Jesus through the studying of your word as we continue, Father. And in your holy name I pray. Amen.